This is Poetry Off the Shelf. I'm Helena Dichrot. Today, let the record hide. In 2018, the poet Paisley Rechtal was commissioned to write a poem. It was meant to commemorate the 150th anniversary of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, which means that Paisley had roughly a year to write it. So she started reading. Then she read some more and started taking trips along the line. She even talked to the few people she could find whose ancestors actually dug and blasted passageways through every imaginable landscape to put down those tracks. So maybe unsurprisingly, the research portion of the project got a little out of hand. The anniversary year came and went, as did the next year and the year after that. But now, five years later, Paisley Regdahl is finally done. She wrote a book titled West. And the book is not so much about the railroad as about the people who built it, most of whom were Chinese-born migrants. And I should note that Paisley Regdahl is of Chinese heritage too, although her family had nothing to do with the railroad. The backbone of the book is a poem by an unknown hand. It was scratched into the wall of the Angel Island Detention Center right off the coast of San Francisco, where after the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882, Chinese immigrants were processed, as they say, but really languished, often for months, in some cases even up to two years. The poem that was scratched into the wall goes like this. Sorrowful news, indeed, has passed to me. I mourn you. On what day will your wrapped body return? Unable to shut your eyes, to whom can you tell your story? Had you known, you never would have made this journey. A thousand ages now hold the sorrow of a thousand regrets. Missing home, you face in vain home-gazing terrace. Your ambitions, unfulfilled, buried under earth. Yet I know death can't turn your great heart to ashes. In her book, West, Paisley Regdahl uses the words in this poem to title each of her own poems, just as a way to organize the material she amassed over her years of historical research. So before we talked about her new collection, I wanted to know how Paisley got so interested in history. You know, it's in, in almost every book that you've written, it's clear that history is something you're drawn to, and you have a degree in uh, history, medieval studies. Yes. And so I was just wondering, like, how did you get onto that path? And what is the furthest back you can go where, like, little Paisley was <laughs> kind of drawn, drawn to that? Well, I think the earliest time I can think about where I was thinking about history, and this sounds incredibly geeky, but when I was a child, I was obsessed with maps, but maps of the classical world, because I was raised effectively by wolves, which is that I was left to myself for hours, but they gave me 
all these incredible recordings of Greek and Roman myths and um, also the Norse myths and things like that. And they were on, they were on these albums. So I play them over and over and I just became really fascinated with these worlds. And I just wanted to know about the worlds themselves. And so I ended up getting these old atlases my dad and mom would give me for Christmas. And I would just sort of copy out the outlines of these countries and sort of draw in like all of the things that I thought were happening. And I mean, I think those are some of my earliest memories of being a child is coming up with these elaborate sort of maps that were sort of fake, but also real histories at the same time, because they were based on sort of geographic places. And then from that, I just kind of kept going with those kinds of questions about other countries, other histories and other stories, which I was always very interested in. But when it comes to some of the work that I'm doing now, like thinking about the 19th century in particular in America... That's something that's also kind of interested me a lot. I think I've got, spent my life in the West, whether it's the Pacific Northwest or living in Wyoming and Utah now for about, oh, close to 26 years. So I've been thinking mm -hmm. a lot about what it means to be a Westerner and to be in the West is a place where your history your fabricated history is always like in front of you. I think we have such a fascination with the American West, the ideas of borders and frontiers, the ideas of the unknown places on the map. And to a large extent, politically, culturally, imaginatively, I think the West still lives in those places. And so I think it's really something it still calls to me. It was like, what is the, what is the real history of the place in which I live? Because I'm always presented, whether it's Yellowstone or it's the newest cowboy movie coming out, I'm always presented with a fake or an incorrect version of the history and where the place I'm living uh-huh. It's so interesting that you describe being as a kid drawn to these maps and making up stories about them and that now you're kind of moving in the opposite direction where it's like, look, I'm being fed all these stories. Let me actually figure out what the real history is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that we first come to any interest in anything via the imagination, our sort of fantasy of the thing. And there is something really powerful about narrative. There's something so powerful about poetry that way too, because we're telling ourselves these kinds of ancient stories that are both true and false. And, you know, there's something, if you dig down, it says like the Greek myths say, it's not that those things are completely fake. There's some human truth that they're actually getting to, whether it's jealousy or the desire for change, the fear of change. There's just so much that, that these stories do tell us. So we're always kind of writing into the fake and the real simultaneously. But the more you care about a place, the more you start thinking it's important to know where you are in time, who you are, then you have to care about real histories. I think one of the things that we're seeing now, especially as we're going through this new wave of censorship of history books and history classes and critical race theory being off limits, is that students often now have to go to school and see like a disconnect between what they know from their family history Mm. And what they learn in school is true, right? And so I wonder if there was a similar thing for you. Um, like, was there ever a moment that you remember that your family history or the things that you knew, that they clashed with what you learned in school? <laughs> yes, it's a great question because that also presupposes the idea that the family history is going to be more accurate. And one of the things that really struck me 
when I was writing The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee, which is my first collection of essays, was that, in fact, some of the, the I will call them stories, in front, some of the histories, the, the stories that I grew up with in my own family were actually fake. There's a story that I was told by my grandmother about how my grandfather, my Chinese grandfather, got the family laundromat. And the story was that a Japanese-American neighbor who owned a laundromat came to him right before um, the Japanese internment and said, I know that they're going to take everything. I'll sell you the laundromat for a dollar if you just take care of it when I come back and you know give it back to me for, you know, you keep all the profits in the meantime, but just hold it for me. And so this was a story that we kept for forever because my grandfather held that laundromat for forever. And then supposedly the Japanese businessman came back and he sold it back to him for a dollar, but kept all the profits. But, you know, it turns out that none of that was true. Um, it was a story that I think we loved to tell in our family because it told a particular story about Asian Americanness at a time when Asian Americanness was the thing that was being debated because the reality is that, you know, my, my grandparents saw themselves as Chinese first, American second, and they didn't have any concept of being Asian American. And so that story, that story was really invented, I think, by my mother and my uncles out of, you know, not in any malicious sense, but in a, I think, a sense of their own longing for a kind of identity, longing for an understanding of where they fit in America. And though, you know, my parents were growing up at a time when Asian American was just starting to come into a kind of vogue, I think that they were creating that for themselves, my mother and her and her brothers. They were creating this idea of political identification. And it may be ahistorical, it may be fantastical, but it doesn't actually to me matter in some respects because I understood that that was another kind of truth that was being forged which is knowing that we've been sheared off from our our particular cultural backgrounds with their particular language or particular histories how is it that we are either forced to or encouraged to and and desire to see ourselves as similar to others Yeah, yeah so I mean I mean, I, I, that's not a story you're ever going to find in one of these textbooks. And it's, it's, you know, it's incorrect in all these ways, but I think it's a slightly better lie than the ones that I think that we want to tell ourselves now in which there's absolutely no conflict. There's absolutely no reason or no problems to demarcate differences and things like that. I mean, the reality is my grandmother was rabidly anti-Japanese. You know, Popo was not somebody who would have wanted to see sort of cross-cultural differences. And that's the difference between her and her children. And that's certainly the difference between my mother and my uncles and me. We have very different ideas down through history about what it means to be Chinese American, what it means to be Asian American. And so just to make sure that I get the story exactly right, you're saying that like probably this is apocryphal or this didn't so happen because there was no solidarity per se between Chinese Americans and Japanese Americans. Is there that was there was no Japanese businessman. <laughs> that's, that's what oh, I was discovering. Yeah, um, it's a good clarification to make because, you know, I think. I think at the end, my grandfather had like a business partner, but it wasn't because of Japanese internment. It wasn't any part of that. So there was no actual incarceration narrative that <laughs> was attached to the story. So it was fascinating, though, that my that the, the family sort of came up with this. And when I asked, you know, how this story kind of evolved, no one can identify where it came from. And in fact, when I published the essay, it came out in the New York Times magazine, my mother was furious because she thought I was calling her a liar in the national press. 
And I didn't want to say that. I, I wanted to say that this is a fantasy that I think all of us wanted to buy into. I mean, why would we all sort of swallow this story, you know, hook, line and sinker? Because we're all invested in it. We all want that story. You know, I say it's a sort of Disneyfied version of Asian American history, too. Um, and so it also has its sort of nostalgias. It also has its sort of problematic kind of fantasies there. But, you know, it, it is contextually grounded for me in other re- respects. Yeah, yeah, right. Like it's revealing in other ways. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting, right? The ways in which we we want to, especially after the facts, <laughs> we want to be a part of the great sweep of history. You know, like what, sweep, swoop? <laughs> sweep. I'll say the use. great sweep, sweep. of history. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, like it's kind of the way that people want to have something to do. Like, I don't know. I don't want to equate that, right? Because like this is your story and I don't want to equate it with what what some other people do but you know the way that some people want to associate themselves with like being victims of the holocaust yeah even though maybe they got out before you know what i mean like like way before like 19th century you know yeah there is something to do with trauma narratives and history i think people one of the things that i think about with history all the time is i i can think of myself simultaneously as a victor of history and a victim of history though i don't even like those terms like i think they're too simplistic but let's just say i'm a beneficiary of certain forms of history as well as i could see my family and myself as um not suffering but certainly having to endure some of the difficulties of history too and i think it's just I think a lot of people ask themselves these kinds of questions, and especially in the last, you know, half decade, I think a lot of people have asked themselves, like, what side of history am I standing on? Am I letting something slide? I, I can't help but sometimes look at the news and think, am I one of those people, and going back to the Holocaust thing, I'm one of those people, like, in, you know, 1938, 1939 Germany, who's not seeing what's right in front of me? You know, am I the dumb person who's not getting out? Or am I the person who's, you know, not fighting hard enough? Am I the person who's, and it's so much better to imagine yourself as, as being able to see so clear-eyed all the things around you to see that you would not be on the wrong side of history. But I kind of know that I've been on the wrong side of history. I know that my own ideas about race have changed quite dramatically over the course of my life. And I think my ideas of gender and you know identity have changed quite dramatically over the course of my life. So what does that make me? I mean, like, I think all of us are in that situation yeah, I think that's why so many people are so terrified of being called a racist right now. They think of it as a, a pure moral stain that's that encompasses their whole being versus, you know, the reality is most of us have been a person or or been in a sort of political moment we we now no longer hold, we now no longer agree with. Um, and there's something about wanting to find a kind of pure narrative around history. Like, I know I'm not I'm not taking advantage. I know I'm not on the wrong side of history. It's much easier to imagine yourself as sort of a victim than it is to imagine yourself as somebody who's participated in it. But the reality is I think we're all doing a little bit of both. Yeah. Dark. Um, <laughs> it's very dark. I was just like, I need to take a beat. I mean, you're so right that I think about this all the time. There was this one interview once that I heard with um Ta-Nehisi Coates mm. and he said something like... Uh, it's very easy to think of yourself as a good person when the boot is on your neck. Yeah. But who would I be if the boot was mine? 
would I still be such a good person? Would I still be able to see myself? You know, yeah. what does it even mean to be a good person, right? Like if 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 you have power, that's when it's really kind of tested, right? <laughs> I well, mean, like if you don't have power, like you yeah. don't, you can only do as much, you know? Exactly. And as a, an American, I think that we have a very blinkered way of seeing victim victimizer because, you know, one could sort of say, in America, I'm the one with the boot on my neck, but globally, I'm the one with the boot on everyone else's neck. You know, if you are an American of a certain class, you know, you you have the boot on the neck of many, many millions of people. You may not see that, but climate change, I think we can all agree, is, is real. And the fact is that some of us affect climate more than others. And I, you know, I think about this and going back to West for a moment, that's one of the reasons why I have a letter written by a Chinese migrant named Norman Ossing in there. And he's writing, you know, it's pretty, a pretty delicately scathing letter to Governor uh, Bigler, who is the governor, a Democratic governor of California at the time who wanted Chinese out. And the letter begins in a way that I think all of us right now would want to agree with and identify with and say, you know, He's right. You know, Ossing is right. This is these policies are racist. These, you know, this anti-Chinese sentiment is terrible. But I included something in the letter that I think oftentimes gets written out whenever Ossing's letter is quoted in Asian American kind of literary studies uh, classes. Ossing makes another point, which is we're not like black people. We have culture. You know, we are assimilable. We are more like white people than black people. And he makes that case. He triangulates race in those ways. And I wanted that there in order to sort of say, like, your sympathies are going to switch somewhere in the middle of this letter. You're going to go from pro-Chinese to wait, like, wait, (laughs) this guy's making a terribly racist argument in favor of, you know, turning a, a racial blind eye to Chinese migrants. And I think that's important. And it goes back to what we were just saying, which is, you know, whose boot is on whose neck and I think that that boot is constantly getting switched out yeah I was wondering if we can get to that poem I think it's called learn right Mm -hmm. so yeah that's the letter by this uh restaurateur right yeah I can read it if you'd like um, yeah. yeah. And I I don't know what, what you want to say before you read. Is there anything else that you want to say about like how you found the letter or, you know, who this person is before you read it? There's not much known about Norman Ossing. He was a restaurateur and he sort of pops up in the record with this very famous letter. And this is from 1832, 1852, excuse me. So it's earlier than exclusion would start in 1882. But there were exclusionary policies constantly being enacted. This was just a state policy, not a federal one. So right, like like crazy taxes and stuff. Crazy right? taxes. Like they were miners, you know, foreign miners' taxes. So the Chinese had to pay three dollars extra for all sorts of things. There were lots of things that they couldn't do, like they couldn't walk on certain parts of the street. They couldn't marry, you know, people. They were not allowed to bring women in because they were afraid that they would quote unquote breed. So there are lots of different large and small kinds of acts, um, federal and state acts, that made it impossible for Chinese to sort of successfully migrate to the country. And this letter basically is one of the responses. So Norman Ossing writes this to Daily Alta California in May of 1852, and it's titled To His Excellency, Governor Bigler. Learn. Sir, I am a Chinaman, Republican, lover of these United States. I have learned of your recent arguments to exclude Chinese workers from entering this state so as, you say, to enhance its wealth, a thought which forgets 
population too is wealth, that once you looked for immigration and it came and made you great throughout the nations of the earth. I am sure you will recognize your own familial origins in this story as your excellency, like all white men, would never boast of having a red man for a father. I am sure the Constitution does not admit asylum only to the pale face, even as it holds the Negro here in forced servitude. As far as the aristocracy of skin is concerned, sir, ours compares with the European races, though the framers of your declaration, I believe, never argued for an aristocracy of skin. Sir, we are as allied to the African and red man as you are. We must remind you that when your nation was a wilderness, we exercised the arts of commerce, science. We grew a civilization while your own one languished, helpless, in the dark. We will not be reproved now for pursuing any work here you consider degrading to a man's character or accept your condemnation except you consider labor degrading for itself. We, like you, make our own way into the future. We have learned to trust in law's distinctions even as we daily see how law is bent here to fit a changing prejudice. One day soon, such prejudice may benefit us. I hope you take this message, sir, in all the spirit of candor. I have the honor to be Norman Ossing, Your Excellency's Obedient Servant. So I did change, I did change a couple of things. Um, uh-huh. Most of this is exactly what he said, but there are um, implications for some of the things that he adds in there that I sort of strengthen. So when I suggest that, you know, one day soon such prejudice will benefit us, that's something that I insert because I think that's one of the things that he's, he's trying to play along with the laws. He's trying to use the same logic that Bigler and racists are using, which is we can't have Chinese in here because they have no culture. And they can't be assimilated and they're not human. So he's using some of their same language. But there's something else that I w- really struck me as I was researching a lot of the history is that many Chinese migrants use the law in order to resist. They saw the courts as something that could help themselves. And I'm fascinated by that, you know, again, as a third, fourth generation, you know, person of Asian descent, which is that. There's been many ways in which I think laws have been designed, again, to sort of drive a wedge between particular communities of color. You know, like (laughs) we want to make sure that some people benefit and some people don't. And I think affirmative action is a perfect example of that debate and how these things come across, which is sort of say like, you know, we should have meritocracy and, you know, Asian people, shouldn't you care about meritocracy because of this? And, you know, a lot of Asian Americans have fallen for that ruse. So I think that there's something Mm -hmm. about that line I wanted in there, which is sort of say laws can benefit us, but these laws, if they come out of, you know, these very racist beliefs and institutions will also work to separate us and uh-huh. and continue uh-huh. to hurt us. Yeah, because I just want to make sure that I understand this correctly. You know, in the letter, Norman writes, um, sir, we are as allied to the African and red man as you are. Yeah. Is What is he saying? Yeah. Is he saying we are as racist towards them as you are or it's, what? Yeah. And it's a good it's a good question. I mean, I think what he's trying to imply consistently is sort of so like, 
you know, if you don't see yourself as like them, we don't see ourselves as like them either. We uh-huh, see ourselves uh-huh. as like you. You know, he's trying to have his cake and eat it, too. He's sort of saying, you know, your constitution never argued for an aristocracy of skin. And that's a direct quote. However, he all goes on to sort of say, that said, <laughs> we are still more like you. So he still wants to make that very, you know, that race-based distinction. I wanted to ask you about your research because, you know, this book is, yeah, about stuff that happened a long time ago, you know, 19th century. And so most of what you would use for research comes out of, you know, books and and sort of that kind of historical record. But you also went out and talked to people, you know, descendants of Mm -hmm. these Chinese, you know, workers, um, freight hoppers, people today who have like a kind of, you know, different relationship with the train and with exclusion. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, you know, like, what was your approach with this project? And like, what specifically are you looking for? Like, what is a good day? What is a good research day? We're like, oh, man, now I found something, you know? (laughs) I mean, I just wanted to go in with as open a a mind as possible, which was easy for me to do because I, I knew nothing. I knew nothing about this history. And I found myself just asking one question continuously, which is who else used the train? In what other ways was the train being used? And the thing about the train, at first I thought this was going to be such a geeky, stupid project because it was really going to be about a train. But it turns out that um, trains as technology and as metaphor really changed culture, just human culture, uh, everything from time to our, our concept of our human bodies, the ways in which gender roles became shaped around train travel was uh, incredibly fascinating to me. Labor obviously puts so many people in, in communication and also contest with each other. Um, I found myself looking at anything I could, etiquette guidebooks, maps, and like you said, lots of oral histories. Um, I also went to a lot of ghost towns along the transcontinental line because I live close to it. So going and walking the transcontinental was actually really mesmerizing and seeing the environmental impacts of it, the 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 ways it cuts through a landscape, the way it literally changes the Great Salt Lake. Half is basically red in certain sunlight. When the sun hits it just right, it looks red on one side and then it looks green on the other because it divides the lake and, you know, these halophytes can't travel back and forth. Um, you know, there's just amazing amounts of sort of obvious and not obvious connections that the train has with, with everything. And so, I mean, a good research day for me looks like I would just find something that not only did I not know about, but I could feel, I could feel a poem. I mean, I don't know a poem. I feel it, you know, before it happens. I can, it's like a heat in in my thorax. (laughs) It really is. I'm just like, oh, there's something there. I don't know what it is. And then I start with an image and I just go with it. And that heat has almost never been wrong. And so oftentimes it's like, if I know what I want to write about, generally speaking, the poem is dead. So for me, it was always like, what do I not know? Who have I not thought about? And especially since so many of the workers were 
I guess, historically, or I should say archivally rendered voiceless because they didn't leave documents, especially the Chinese. We have no written documents. It was always about trying to find, can I get a trace of that voice when I know that there are no voices that they themselves left? So for me, the greatest day was, you know, it was like a, a complete and obvious thing, which is I was like, what about phrase books from the 19th century? You know, like a lot of these workers didn't speak English. So they would have bought phrase books. So what what did these phrase books say? And when I opened up these phrase books, it was just incredible because, in fact, they were telling you exactly what they're experiencing every single day. You know, we go and buy a phrase book and it's like, this skirt is too big. <laughs> you know, how much is the gelato? You know, <laughs> you know, can I get a refund? And theirs are all there. Theirs are all like, um, where's the police station? This man, you know, stole all my goods. This man cut my head. Don't arrest me. Yeah. That woman is a prostitute. You know, like it was really this person committed suicide. That's a line from a phrase book, you know, that they ex- assumed that the average worker would need to know. And when you put those together, you're just like, oh, wow. No, they were speaking across time. We know exactly what they're experiencing. And it's not a good story. <laughs> it, you're, you're right. It is wild. You know, when I read that, I was like, oh, wow, this is so unvarnished in a way. You know, yeah. like, I don't know if you would have a more honest account if someone would actually write about it. Yeah. Um, and so who made those phrase uh, books? Was that like the government or like who made them? That's another question. I would love to know that, too. I mean, there's a guy named Sam Wong and he basically worked for, I guess, that Wells Fargo actually paid for these books to be produced. So I think they huh. are very much attached to labor banks, you know, money, basically. But I think there's a great essay to be written and I'm sure someone has written it. I remember now something's burbling in the back of my mind. There was an article I came across. Somebody was was asking a question like, who was Sam Wong? But um, maybe I'll go and write a poem about that now. <laughs> yeah. Go and see if I can find it. Who was Sam Wong? Yeah. And and just to kind of like really uh, get to the bottom of this. So so you just thought of this? Like, oh, I should actually go look at phrase books? Or like how? Yeah, it just came to me. I would have never in a million years thought of it. Yeah, I know. Because I would say that this... I was very lucky with this project because there was something that was very inspired all the time. Uh, when I was given the commission to write a poem about the Transcontinental Railroad, I think that they thought I was going to write some janky little sonnet about, you know, oh, the rails, the sound of the rails, sound of America <laughs> uniting itself. And they were, you know, I knew they were asking for a work of soft, you know, propaganda. And I knew I didn't want to do that, but I didn't know what to do. And so I sat down, I just decided to read everything I could from the 19th century around that time period. And I, I thought, well, Okay, then I'll write a cento. I'll write a cento that is composed of all of the poems ever written about trains. So I read all the poems in English I could find about trains. It was horrifying. And so I tried that. That was just a mess. It just was lifeless. And then I had gotten this book, Island, in the mail. And it's basically all of the poems that have been carved at the walls of Angel Island, and they were translated. And I was going for a run, and I just thought, what if I was going to take a poem and translate it and use every character as a, a an opening into another poem about the railroad? And then I was like, that mm-hmm. helps me because that allows me to actually um, contain all the stuff I was finding, you know, because one of the problems with this poem when I was trying to write it was I, I had to have a through line. I thought I had to have a narrative, but everything I was reading was sort of, I mean, it was history, which, 
in a weird way, history doesn't actually have a clear narrative. Mm-hmm. It has voices. It has narratives. It has fractal radial connections, but it doesn't have a single through line. And the thing about a translation of a poem that we create a spine, but all these openings was that it would allow for all these histories to exist, to branch off from each other, um, mm-hmm. but also to go back to the idea that they are all speaking towards something that pulls them together. Yeah. And then, you know, the other thing that was really lucky about it was that when the poem, when I discovered that the poem I chose, I chose solely because it had one word in it, Terrace. And Terrace is the name of a ghost town on the transcontinental that I had visited that actually has a Chinese section that I was able to sort of see sort of with the state archaeologist. I would love to get to the poem uh, Terrace. I, I, that, I thought it was an extraordinarily moving poem. It's on page 97. And uh, yeah, you, you already said that one of the things that you did was like, you know, physically go to this ghost town called Terrace. So can you tell me just about that visit or that day? Were you alone? You know, what was it like? <laughs> yeah, it was it was amazing because I went out there with a state historian and an archaeologist and some journalists. And strangely enough, I think the communications director for the governor <laughs> and we were all just kind of wandering around and they were driving us, you know, for hours out there in the basically near the West Desert. And Terrace is a, it's a total ghost town. It's one of the largest ghost towns along the transcontinental, the deadline, where you can see outlines of some of the old railroad, they call them the, I think the outbuildings or something like that, the barrows and things like that, the roundhouse, sorry, that's what it's called, the roundhouse, um, which is a place. And what's that? Well, it's, mm, <laughs> yeah, I'm still trying to figure it out too. It's basically a place where you would drive a train in and it would click in and it would sort of wheel it around so it could put it on a different track. You know, you can see parts of the older town and there's a cemetery there where you can see graves, uh, memorial plaques and things like that put up for former workers and people who lived in Terrace. But what's also interesting is that, you know, the, the place is still sort of divided, segregated, even 150 years on. You can feel that segregation through the archaeological fragments that you'll find. So if you go to certain parts of town, you'll be like, This is where the white people lived. And you can tell because of the dishes and you can tell because of, you know, the um, structures of the houses. And you can tell where the Chinese lived because it was close to the dump and all of the Chinese dishes and, you know, bits of opium pipes and certain workers buttons that, you know, the Chinese would have worn with their clothes. They're all found in that area. Mm. So it's a place where like the earth itself just sort of carries that history. So one of the first things we were doing, the archaeologist said, is like, go and just start sifting around your fingers. And he said, and whatever you do, don't take anything to pick it up, look at it, and then put it down exactly where you found it. And of course, the very first thing that some journalists did was take it and then walk away with it to show other people. And the archaeologist was like, no, no, you're terrible people. I, I just want everyone to know that I did not take anything. <laughs> so, but I do write about these fragments a lot. So So this is Terrace. Terrace. Of this town once built from redwoods trekked from the cold Sierras, nothing's left. Just bits of aqueduct lost by the roundhouse, an outline ridge of knuckled barrows, glass chips violet from a century of sun. Fists of clinker, and on the berm's west side, the ghostly hollows of Chinese dugouts whose perimeter I trace according to the wreckage. 
shattered whiskey bottles. Bone dishes ground into a culvert where I find, thin as a baby's fingernail, this metal trouser button, its edges crimped, eyes scrubbed clean of earth so that, when I peer through its slits, I catch a whiskered glimpse of jackrabbit, moving so fast, not even time can catch him. Thank you. I mean, one thing, maybe this is a very silly question, but I had it as I was reading this poem. Um, you know, I'm European. I've seen my share of ruins and, <laughs> and, and things with just little shards in the ground. And that's, you know, you go there and there's a perimeter around it and you can't touch anything. But, you know, the, the point is that you imagine all these lives that were mm. lived there. And I have to say that I've always had the biggest... Uh, I've always had trouble with that, you know. I I stand there and I think, okay, let's feel something mm -hmm. big, you know. Here I am on the on the actual place where the Romans had their baths or whatever, and I feel nothing. I can't imagine it. So can I ask you, like, d did you feel stuff? <laughs> <laughs> did I fake that poem? Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, sometimes the, the feeling comes like yeah. in the thinking about it later, right? I think it does. It's. You know, that's funny where you, it's not a silly question at all because one of the, one of the things I struggled with the most just in the research of this book was something similar to it, to what you described, which is when you go to a place and you see nothing but fragments. And the reality is, especially when you're dealing with histories that are nothing but fragments because there are no archival records or there are so few archival records, you're left with almost nothing. When you have the fragments, you're sort of stuck with a couple of desires. And, and it kind of goes back to something that Sadia Hartman was writing about in her own scholarship, which is that one, you might want to start writing in as fast as possible what you think happened. You know, you're going to want to assemble the real Roman structure out of this thing, you know, because it and there's a risk of doing that because you're you're going to maybe disnify it a little bit or you're going to be you know, getting something wrong to satisfy your own emotional urges, or you're going to write a very, or imagine a very presentist kind of history about that past. So one of the tensions I had was sort of like saying to myself, could I let the fragment be the fragment? Could I let the untranslated stay untranslated? Because it's true, I'm not going to have the full emotional experience. I'm not going to have that full identification but I don't know if I would have had it anyway. Like, I mean, it would be a fantasy for me to sort of say, like, if somehow miraculous, I could go back to like 1869 and, and meet some of these Chinese workers walking off like the completed transcontinental and get a translator and say, like, what do you think? And it would be a fantasy for me to think that they would want to talk to me, that they would have anything to say to me that would resonate emotionally with me now in the ways that I want that kind of resonance. It's not to say that they wouldn't have anything important to say. They absolutely would. It's just that I might have a very sentimental notion of what they thought of their lives and how they experienced their work that they wouldn't have. And I might be, you know, I, 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 I might be fabricating so much in order to, to resuscitate something. So going back to this, like, where did I feel something? I felt very powerfully moved, actually, in this place called Dove Cut, which is a nothing wasteland place. There is nothing to look at. It's just miles and miles of desert. And you've got this enormous kind of grade that's been cut into this hill. 
and you just see nothing but transcontinental and sagebrush for miles. It's utterly exposed. It's barren. It's visually not very attractive. And it was cold that day. And I remember just thinking, I, for one second, I could sort of sense what it would have been like to have had to spend every day, like hours of every day, cutting that stuff out by hand, you know, exposed to all of this element, nothing to relieve any of this labor, nothing aesthetic to relieve it. And and then the sheer monumentality of that physical work, it really struck me. It really, it, it really kind of bowled me over because I was like, oh my God, people made this <laughs> and they yeah, had to do yeah. it by hand. And, you know, it's very easy to sort of sit in an armchair and go, the transcontinental was a terrible capitalist thing. And But it's another thing to kind of go out there and say, wow, this, this is insane what they did. Yeah. It's incredible that there is something important about honoring that labor, even as you can sort of see how dehumanizing it was. So I really wrestled with that. Like I want fragments to say fragments. I want things to be untranslated, but I also want people to sort of feel the exhaustion mm -hmm. of it. And I think that's partly why this book is so long, you know, like I mm -hmm. want people to this to, to recognize like this was not just a few days in a few people's lives. I mean, this was years of effort and people died doing it. And it was um, it's just incredible when you when you see it and feel that monumentality. Yeah. I love that, that you kind of were able to, even for just an instant, bring it down to the level of an individual worker mm. who feels that wind, who feels that desolation. Yeah, yeah. And and feels also like almost the the Sisyphean. Sisyphean. Yeah, Sisyphean nature of that task, right? Yeah. Because like once the transcontinental railroad is finished, you can see it as a whole. But for an individual worker, it must have just been a hopeless task almost. Yeah, right? it, it would feel never ending because all you're seeing is more railroad, more and more and more railroad. And Sisyphean is the perfect word because as soon as you've built the railroad, you have to build it again. It's like the San Francisco Bridge, you know, like you paint it and then it immediately like you have to turn around and start painting it again because it takes so long to do it. And then you're like, and the sun and weather and everything like that. So you think of a railroad as like, oh, it's finished, it's complete, the infrastructure's done. But in fact, you know, track degrades, you know, nails pop out. You're constantly rebuilding. I want to get to a poem that is sort of the polar opposite of this one. So in this one, you left the fragments be the fragments, mm. buttons, uh, whiskey bottles. And then you have this other poem called, um, give me one second, What Day? Yeah, this is exactly the opposite, right? Yeah, where I'm trying to actually imagine workers. This is the most violation kind of, <laughs> of a poem, right? So let me read this one. What day? On this seventh day of the seventh month, magpies bridge in a cluster of black and white, the sky king crosses to meet his queen, time tracked by the close-knit wheeling of stars. I watch. You come to me tonight, drunk on wine and cards, nails ridged black with opium to ease the pain of work. We are all men here. Any body can be a bridge, little raven. Your eyes squeeze shut, but not from pain. We are a trestle, a grade we build together. What matter if you say you'd never choose me? Were there women willing in this desert? I chose. 
I choose the memory we share of rivers, your hair of smoke and raw, wet leather. A man in another man's hand makes himself tool or weapon, says the overseer, as if a man's use to another is only one of work. Pleasure is our only chosen future. You are the home I briefly make, the country I can return to. Here, where the moon wheels its white shoulder in the dark as you push me to the earth, slip my whiskered tip of hair into your mouth. So this one, obviously, I imagine <laughs> quite a lot. Um, I imagine, you know, two men, one who seems far more comfortable acknowledging the sex that he's having and then the other. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons I did this. Um, one was, again, going back to that Dove Cut thing. And in, in a weird way, this is a poem that does respond to Dove Cut because when I was there at that place, all I could see and think about was pain, just like this sheer pain of making that railroad. And one of the questions I had that I couldn't get answered was sort of like basically the queer railroad, which is, you know, there, we've got 15,000 around about Chinese men working on the line. I'm certain there was some sexual contact, you know, between some of them. Right. And, you know, we don't know. We don't know anything about that. We don't really spend a lot of time thinking about LGBTQ lives on the railroad. At least I, I couldn't find much in the criticism. And it really struck me that, you know, there's a way in which sexual pleasure, a sort of erotic pleasure that these men could have with each other would be in a way, a way of resisting some of the work that they had to go through. You know, this is a pleasure that was only for themselves and it didn't have economic value. And there's also a way of thinking about that moment of sexual intimacy is one of a kind of return back to China, weirdly, for some of the workers, because, you know, a lot of the workers didn't want to come and stay in America. They saw themselves as sojourners. They were going to make money in America and go back. But there was a real risk that they could die in America. They knew that. And so, you know, this moment of, of intimate contact is a way of sort of like reestablishing almost a, a, a bridge, a link back. Mm. I mean, one question that I had about this poem and about this, like, imagining mm. of things that have not been documented um, is, yeah, that question of appropriation, of speaking for others. Um, and you wrote a whole book about that uh, <laughs> titled <did>. Appropriate, <laughs> which was before this one. Uh, so you have, you know, you went into this book already having thought about that deeply and having researched and written about it. And one of the things that you write in that book, um, like many writers today, I believe writing in the voice of someone outside my subject position surely crosses a line. But which one exactly? The fact that you wrote a whole book already implies that you kind of complicated a lot of the notions that we mm. associate with appropriation, what constitutes appropriation and when it is something you do even while knowing that it is appropriate. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, and so here I feel like this is a really interesting case where it's like, well, there was, there is literally no other record. Yeah. We're not writing over someone. You know what I mean? We're not yeah. telling their story for them while they actually could perfectly tell it themselves. Like, no, they didn't and they won't because now they're dead. Yeah. 
Uh, and so can you tell me like how you approached that as a contemporary woman with absolutely no relation to the railroad? Um, mm. How did you approach that? Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, obviously when you write a book about cultural appropriation and literature and then you write a book that is entirely appropriative, <laughs> you're like, well, okay, <laughs> let's put this into practice. Um, one of the first things I thought was... Uh, yeah, with appropriate a provocation, which I wrote, the last chapter talks about what are the upsides of appropriation. And there are some, and some of them have to do, I think, with, again, questions of a kind of historical reclamation and also community solidarity, I would say, which is when we have an archive that is so skewed towards certain kinds of voices, right? you're inviting people to have to kind of write into the fragments of the archive. And it's only sadly through appropriation that we're going to get those, whether it's through the found poems that you get through those voices, or it's through kind of imaginations that come out of the research from those fragments. And you do have to ask yourself, like, is it better to quote unquote, stay in my lane so that the 19th century Chinese man can be resuscitated and finally write a story? Or do you think it might be important to actually start doing that work, understanding that what you're doing is an approximation. I mean, I think one of the things that that sets people off is whether you're on the left or the right on this kind of issue is that there's an idea that there's an authentic experience, there's an authentic voice, and that there's a way that you're going to get it perfectly right. But the reality is the more you know about identity, the more we know about each other, we understand that we share patterns, but we are rarely the same. And so when we're talking about building characters that are believable, building worlds that are believable, we're already talking about approximations based on what are patterns that are recognizable, similar, believable, but also not reductive. I think that where we get work that's appropriative is where we start to make insistent arguments that this racial identity is going to mean these kinds of things. You know, going back to that uh, letter by Norman Ossing, that is an example of that kind of racist thinking, which is sort of like, mm. you know, Chinese and white people have culture and someone who's not Chinese and white does not. That sort of equation. And so I think that when we start getting away from these kinds of reductive ways of thinking about identity and race and how they would have to be connected to particular virtues, particular kinds of activities, particular kinds of beliefs, I think we free ourselves up to actually see what the historical record has to offer. Um, with something like What Day, where I'm I'm really just I'm truly imagining this kind of interaction I can't prove didn't exist or did exist. You know, I have to sort of say, like, what is the humanity that I'm trying to imagine on display here? What do these two men want? And it's not about trying to perform a particular idea of racial identity. It's about understanding how can a moment of intimacy provide a kind of relief that the economic conditions of their the rest of their lives wouldn't give them. And that's what that poem is about. Yeah, I, I want to just stay with that a moment longer because from everything that we've been talking about, it's so clear that you're like an extremely thorough researcher. And then I wonder, like, what do you have to do inside yourself to kind of switch modes and make yourself free of that, mm. to allow for that imagination to blossom? I think for me, this goes back weirdly to my training as a medievalist. When I was starting out, one of the medievalist scholars that I loved the most was Carolyn Bynum. And 
she wrote these incredible books where she would move between art history and church history and you know church rituals and literature and what things she could find the very few documents that she could find from about you know average people's lives and stuff like that and she would compile these things together and and create this incredibly imaginative way of reseeing certain kinds of religious rituals reimagining the ways that women saw their own bodies and desire and hunger and reading her work taught me so much about the ways in which historical scholarship, any kind of scholarship is actually really creative. I think we forget that. We think, oh, it's just a dry interpretation. But scholars who are really good are doing something similar to poets, which is sort of like, why is this fact drawing me to that story when they have nothing to do with each other? Why is this image calling to that you know, a bit of material that has nothing to do with that. And it's that bridge of metaphor. You start, you know, connecting the dots and you start having a, a greater and maybe more capacious understanding of how a world can be built out of the conversation between these fragments. And that was something I wanted to do with Wes too, which is to sort of say like all of these different things. I don't think of history and poetry as separate. I think of them as as doing very similar kinds of work. They are translating forms of experience, multitudes of voices and identities and expressions and infusing them into something that feels like a whole. Even as we know, it's really not that. You know, the poem is not real at the same time it is speaking to truth and the histories that we read are not ever a hundred percent accurate, even as they are very close <laughs> to representing movements that we can recognize as true. I'm just wondering, like when you look at, you know, your family members, you know, people maybe who have already passed on or who, you know, will someday. Do do you ever think about things that you want to preserve of theirs? Yeah, 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 I do. Um, there's sort of two answers to that question. One, if you go on the website, there's a poem called Heart. And in the book, it's called Not Ash. So there's a difference. But you'll actually see a document that my grandfather, Gung Gung, produced where he had had this amazing photograph album of all of these. He was a really good looking guy, uh, Gung Gung was when he was young and he got around, let's just put it this way. So it's a photograph <laughs> album entirely of these young, attractive women he, I think he was dating. But around them, and he drew these amazing like dragons and opera singers and Chinese poems and all sorts of stuff, like this filigree of text and his own images that he designed around that photographic album. And in a way, I've always wanted to produce a document just like that. It's just such an, a marvelous thing. And I want to preserve that. And in some ways, some of my writing, I feel like, I think theoretically and formally, I've been trying to produce my grandfather's photo album my entire life. Like, how can I, how can I do exactly that? Like there's this photographic record and this imaginative like filigree around the side, but I'm also working on a new book of poems very slowly. And 
it, it's sort of it's like the mean girls burn book almost which it's just a terrible thing to say but i'm like there are some things about my family life and my own personal history that i'm like this does need to be recorded um not because it's important in in an historical way but it's a very important thing for me to to get out emotionally i feel like as you get older you become more aware obviously of your own mortality and you just want to say like what are the last things i want to say before i go it's not like i'm on death's door i probably got about 50 more years but i mean uh i i i do think that there's a kind of honesty that i want to get down on paper and so I'm writing some pretty brutal poems now about myself, about my family that I do feel like I want those to be part of the archive too. But I also know that I kind of want people to be dead before that book comes out. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, 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 yeah. And it's interesting when you say, you know, what are the last things that I want to say that can go so many directions, right? Like I'm thinking about... Yeah just stories of what happened it can be like an indictment like you know what i never liked you <laughs> you know whatever <laughs> or it can be You're... some kind of deathbed <laughs> confession <laughs> yeah. yeah no i it, yeah i know it makes it sound like i was like and i always hated that tapioca pudding <laughs> you know like that's not where i'm going out with um it, it's more like this was i want to be i, I mean I, i think everyone in a family knows what I'm talking about, which is how is it you can be so intimately, deeply connected with people you love and watch people that you love hurt each other so much and you hurt other people too. And you accept and you forgive all of those things simultaneously. At the same time, you're furious. You know, I, I guess I want to, what I want to preserve is the honesty of what it means to be in a family. And that's a really hard thing to do as it turns out. And that's kind of what I want to get down was sort of like who were my parents who am I who were we together um that seems really important to me and in that case um how do you approach just having your vantage point like you know what I'm saying right like it's like when people write a memoir mm. and then the family members that are inevitably in there they're they're like you didn't portray that correctly or yeah. like I feel you know which is you know par for the course yeah and so I'm wondering while you're slowly slowly writing these poems is there a part of you that goes into research mode again that is like I should interview my mom about you know or do you just really want to hew close to your own hmm. subjectivity in this case I want to hew close to my own subjectivity because knowing my mom the evasions that will inevitably occur during the oral history. But with that itself would be fascinating. Actually, it might be a great poem is sort of like, you know, what she wanted to say, what she didn't say, you know, kind of thing. But um, I understand that. And I think everyone who writes and who reads these memoirs knows that, of course, that vantage point is, is always fraught because as, as hard as you, work to be as honest about yourself as possible you can't help but cast yourself as the protagonist um and so there is a kind of manipulative way in which i go back to the poems and sort of say like have i made my have i been honest about my own ugliness um and so sometimes i catch myself i mean one of the things that if there's a tick to my writing that maybe is a problem or not is that i love beauty i do i love a, a well-turned sentence i love you know, a, a particularly polished poem. I'm not necessarily somebody who likes to write very, um, 
direct kinds of poems. So even West was a departure for me because I'm writing in very direct modes and a lot of times because I'm using oral histories. But, you know, going back to this, like, you know, is my love of beauty actually making me dishonest emotionally is a question that I'm asking myself all the time in these poems, you know, like, what am I lying about? And am I lying in my own syntax? <laughs> so it's, I, it, it is, that's why the poems are coming so slowly because I am asking myself all the time, like, did I just make this too pretty to be true? And are you pushing yourself away from beauty? A little bit, but also, you know, I go back and forth on this. I'm just so divided because another part of me is like, why should we resist beauty? Because I think we're in a point in time now where with our writing and in our art, we really privilege what feels like spontaneous, urgent expression, which I find also very compelling. But there is something about beauty that the kind of beauty that I like also takes time. It takes a fair amount of consideration to produce. There's something a little Baroque about it. That's, that's what's annoying about the beauty that I like, I think. But, <laughs> but I, I, I think that when, when applied correctly, beauty of intellect and thought, I think, is, is something that can move us towards, towards the good that we sometimes you know, we'll accept an idea because it is also well formulated. And that isn't something we should uh, discount. Um, beauty is not just part of an argument. Beauty can be the whole argument. And I think when we're asking ourselves, like, can we be good as, as humans, which I think is a good question to ask ourselves, can we be better humans? You know, beauty can be really part of that conversation. Can I persuade myself through my attraction to an idea the way it's phrased? Can I persuade myself to then follow that as a better way of being in the world. Paisley Regdahl is the author of seven books of poetry, including The Invention of the Kaleidoscope, Animal Eye, finalist for the 2013 Kingsley Tufts Prize and winner of the UNT Rilke Prize, Imaginary Vessels, finalist for the 2018 Kingsley Tufts Prize, Nightingale, which won the 2020 Washington State Book Award for Poetry, and her latest collection, West, which also has an accompanying website with audio, videos, pictures, and poems. You can find that at westtrain.org. She also wrote four works of prose, The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee, Intimate, The Broken Country, and appropriate a provocation. Paisley Regdahl has received a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Fulbright Fellowship, and a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, among many other honors. From 2017 to 2022, she served as Utah's Poet Laureate. Paisley Regdahl is a distinguished professor at the University of Utah, where she gets to go back to her old love of maps through community web projects she set up such as Mapping Literary Utah and Mapping Salt Lake City. To find out more, check out the Poetry Foundation website. The music in this episode is by Todd Sikkefus and Erik van der Westen. I'm Helena de Groot, and this was Poetry Off the Shelf. Thank you for listening. <laughs>